When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why did Kyrie call LeBron? Should the Mavs trade Dennis Smith Jr.? Are there too many three-point shots in the NBA? The only question left is, say it with me, you win. Hey, sports fans, Coach Nick here, and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. As always, I'm joined by Jared Weiss of The Athletic, covers the NBA, covers the Celtics. Jared, you're covering this podcast tonight. It's great to be on the beat, on the B-Ball Breakdown beat podcast beat. All right. I don't know how many beats I can throw in there. (laughs) Let's stop. Now, let's talk about some interesting stuff because a lot of things are happening this week. Uh, We have Kyrie Irving sort of understanding now what it would be like to be in LeBron's shoes when they were back in Cleveland and calling him and letting him know that. Uh, it was kind of a funny, real moment, I thought, from Kyrie, who perhaps, was it, an, was it an apology call to LeBron? What would you characterize it as? Oh, yeah. It was a, it was the grandest of mea culpas. It was, I didn't even say it right. It was, oh, my God, what have I done? What did I do this entire time? I need to call LeBron and apologize immediately. I mean, that's, that is how he portrayed it. And yeah. Oh, LeBron, I forgive you for not pronouncing mea culpa properly. Mea culpa, my bad. And so... LeBron apparently looked at his phone and he's like, who's this guy calling me right now? Is he for real? And I guess it worked out. But this from, I mean, the whole story has just been fascinating as far as the Kyrie thing. Kyrie brought it up out of the blue. We all of, I was standing in the back, like not even recording the presser, just kind of listening in. And I did kind of like Scooby-Doo going, like when I heard that, like LeBron, really? Uh, you know, that was he, he who shall not be named. I think I've heard Kyrie say the name LeBron like twice, even though he's been asked about LeBron a hundred times since he got to Boston. I mean, he was trying to distance himself so hard. And then I, I forget. I was on a pod, another pod. Sorry, I cheated on you with another pod. And they were asking me about what Kyrie was saying after that Orlando game or is it the Brooklyn game? I can't remember now. And uh, I said he's just pulling a LeBron. Like he learned from LeBron. This is the exact this is the exact kind of stuff that LeBron literally did during a presser in Boston early at the beginning of 2018 when Boston beat them and they were like having their skid. And LeBron did the all like you know he, he was do, he kind of did the whole like I'm gonna put the team on my back. Everybody's gotta you know get their stuff together. And then after the camera stopped rolling, he like he, you know, most of his wives were there, and I was kind of like hiding amongst the wives, just kind of watching it out. And yeah, um, it's, yeah, it felt like an episode of big love. And he was like, come on, you guys know what's going to happen now. This is what I always do. And didn't quite do it. But then of course in the playoffs, he did it. And I think Kyrie like has seen that move so many times with LeBron. He's like, this is how I got to do it. I got to challenge everybody. I got to tell everybody you guys are great talents, but you gotta, you gotta recognize the amount of consistency and hard work it takes and all that stuff. And he just like he just he, he like knew the moves, but he didn't know the steps, and he just overstepped over and over and over. I didn't even mean to 
make the punt fit like that. But so, I mean, he, he screwed up really bad, and it's the kind of thing that can be rectified pretty quickly. And I, th- I think he rectified it, and there's a lot of people that are doing the whole, like, this is just Kyrie trying to call attention to himself, which is just is not not how it works in reality when you're actually there at these press conferences most of the time. But he also did volunteer the LeBron thing completely unprompted, so maybe we should try to break that down. But sure. I'm wondering, what, what was that like from your perspective, being on the other side of the country where Le- I assume it was you were with Kevin Love and LeBron having dinner and you spit out your vino when you saw that it was uh, Kyrie on the other line. Yeah, I was sitting with their wives in the table next to the, them when they were eating. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it was interesting. It, it was weird. It kind of reminds me of some, in some weird way and a total uh, off topic. But, like, uh, you know, the way I taught shooting for a long time, when I realized that it was all wrong, I would – I, I literally called a couple of my old players and like apologized to them saying, can you forgive me? You were actually really doing it right. And I tortured you trying to like do some BS version of what we thought was, you know, how everyone taught shooting for decades and decades. So uh, I, it, I think it's a nice little moment, a real moment uh, amongst NBA players. You don't get a chance to see all the time. Now, am I to infer from what you said that what Kyrie said about uh, his teammates and how they have to grow up or learn how to play hard, whatever that all those those, you know, cliches are. Was that did, was that a a problem in the locker room? Did, did people respond that negatively to it? I don't really think so. You know, I, I talked to a couple different former and current players for, over like the last week about this, or however many days it's been. Feels like it's been three weeks in Kyrie World, but so that's just because of the shape of the Earth. Time's different there, but mm-hmm. everybody, I, there was a unanimous agreement that the stuff that is happening in the media doesn't really matter on the court unless some of the players are making it matter. And so with these things, it really comes down to where these guys like, you know, Jalen was the one that spoke up against Kyrie and he didn't go like Fuck Kyrie. He was basically like, you know what? Leadership is a top down thing. The guys at the top need to lead us and we all need to be accountable, but we also can't be pointing fingers at each other, which was the most balanced take that I think I saw from anybody on the subject. Tatum basically said, you know, Kyrie's, I mean, Kyrie's like his big brother. It's the Duke brotherhood. It's they're close. They're the, you know, those, they're the two most talented players on the team. Tatum is obviously not what, the second best player on the team, but he's probably the second most talented as far as like raw basketball skill. And, you know, Tatum was kind of like, you know what, Kyrie's got the pedigree, but also Kyrie's kind of going a little bit off the deep end on that one and maybe went a little too far, but we got to listen and respect him. And so when you compare those, and then Terry Rogier, who in an interview with, I think it was Vinny Goodwill at Yahoo, said this team has too much talent. Um, he made a comment about Kyrie that like basically it was him kind of saying like Kyrie was right, but also like, it wasn't clear if he was also saying that this is a problem. It was very vague and people kept running with the quote. And like, I, I looked at the quote and, I'm like, and I know Terry pretty well. I'm like, I don't even understand what Terry was trying to say, but Jalen is kind of the guy that's been the kind of pushed out of his, where he expected to be. And so, you know, Tatum is in the role he expected to be. Terry thinks are going poorly, but he's in the role that he expected to be, even if it's not going well. But you know, Jalen's a guy that's had, I think had to make the biggest sacrifice of anybody on the team. And I think Jalen is, you know, and his plays went up and down this year, but it's gotten better as he's gotten healthier. And I don't, you know, he's made some mistakes on defense, but I don't think effort, I don't think he's intentionally not trying. I think he's just making mistakes out there. And Jalen, I think, looked at those comments and he was like, what the hell? I'm the person that's had to make the real sacrifices here. I'm willing to, 
you know, I, I'm not getting at my starting spot where I can kind of have the trust that I can work myself back into play like the way everybody else has. So I can see why Jalen responded that way. And I think that's where you start to actually have issues that can show up on the court. For sure. Well, you know, the thing with uh, Kyrie trying to assume the mantle of leader is that I have a, there's an old adage, you can wear a cowboy hat, but that doesn't make you a cowboy. And I don't know if saying the right things like that as the leader should simply makes him the leader yet. And I don't know if he's ever going to be that guy or not. Certainly, I don't know if he's that guy who can somehow do that in the media publicly versus the kind of, you know, I don't know Kyrie at all personally, but it just seems like, you know, he could probably get a lot more mileage doing it, you know, privately, one-on-one individually and talking to people and leading that way. So we'll see how it works. But certainly uh, there's some, some issues with the with the, the Celtics they need to, to straighten out. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of the leadership issues that we're sort of struggling with uh, over on Dallas because we now have reports that you know Dallas is trying to shop Dennis Smith Jr., and that's becoming an issue perhaps with Dennis Smith Jr. and Carlisle, the head coach. So I think there's an interesting dilemma here because clearly when you have a guy like Luka Doncic who is simply you know magnificent in his role as a rookie, um, I, I feel like there's probably some pressure here from the Dennis Smith Jr. camp to either take back some of his shine that he had the year before or cut bait and get the heck out of there. Well, what's interesting is, so we had that Tim McMahon report come out on Thursday, and I think it was from that report, one of the things that really caught my eye was what seemed to be saying that it was that the noise that DSJ wants to be traded is not coming from him, but from his agent. And one, that is a that's an extremely loaded uh, accusation. It's basically saying that the agent is operating independently of the player and not representing the player specifically, if I'm understanding it correctly, which is what it seemed to be. And also what one thing that's interesting with DSJ is that his agency is a football agency. It's a paramount. I don't really, I don't really know too much about them, but their other NBA clients are Jay Crowder. And then a bunch of like kind of, you know, smaller players are playing overseas, stuff like that. But DSJ is their first is kind of like their first marquee player not to mention jay crowder who did get a five-year deal he got what was considered to be underpaid by most people that were around the team and around the league when he signed that deal so maybe they're trying not to make the same mistake but um on the football side they have a bunch of players that have held out and they even like advertise on their website that one of the i think it was like marcus mcneil's alignment for the chargers that they were advertising or promoting that he held out and got more money and so I thought that was a really I'm not I'm not making I'm, I'm drawing a very I'm making a very clear implication of what I think is going on here or there. And so it's it's a really it's unique because DSJ if he really if his agency really feels that he needs to be moved at this point would be kind of un, or at least I can't think of any precedent for that in very recent memory where someone like right away in their career wanted to shift just because seemingly just because there was another player who seemed to be the franchise guy. I'm trying, yeah. I'm trying to think. There's got to be one, but yeah, it's not. I mean, it's not a, an unfamiliar story. Certainly, where a guy comes in and like looks to be the man, and then somebody else comes in the next year. You know, I mean, is like Mark Jackson winning the rookie of the uh, rookie of the year, and then they draft Rod Strickland the next year. Um, it's such a, that's not a great comparison, but like, there's got to be uh, another one. But yeah, I mean, it's an interesting dynamic because what's weird is that um, Dennis Smith Jr. has been playing better. He's been shooting better than he did last year, and a lot of it probably has to do with Doncic out there and having to run the show. But there's also this sort of uh, pushback between uh, usage rate, where you look at the fact that Dennis Smith Jr. has to sort of really 
um, sit back in the background and play in the corner and wait for the ball to come to him and not be on the ball as much. Um, and it's really gotten down. Like, he didn't play a lot in December, so his usage rate really uh, plummeted. And now uh, Doncic is firmly at uh, over 30%. And he is down in the 20s or below 20 now. So he's like, you know, Berea gets more usage than he does. Uh, it doesn't really translate more. to winning, but it certainly seems like the Mavericks are a better team, at least offensively, when Doncic is out there without Smith Jr. The on-off numbers are not pretty. Um, I mean, the thing is, he's getting to the rim more this year, which I assume is probably the thing that he cares about the most. And last year the percentage of his shots that were assisted uh, were way, uh, way lower. And, I mean, that just makes it so much easier for you. And I, I, I think the question with him is just, what is what does he want his career to be? Does he want to be an efficient scorer or does he want to be a volume scorer? And, I mean, frankly, being a volume scorer wouldn't be that bad for this team. Rick Carlisle has always had two point guard systems. This would be the first time that he had two, like, actually elite point guards, uh, or at least first time in a long time. And, I mean, they complement each other well. DSJ kind of does all the stuff that Luka doesn't, and Luka does all the stuff that DSJ doesn't really do. It's such a – it's. I feel like it's a match made in heaven. And you have – you know, it's it's like um, it's like Talladega Knights with Will Ferrell and John C. Riley. It's shake and bake, baby. I mean, they, they can <laughs> – I can't think of a of a more complementary backcourt play, pairing in the NBA, where you have like two completely contrasting players that can fill every single gap that you could want from guys attacking from the perimeter. Yeah, I mean, there's there's some weirdos over in the West Coast uh, that play in Oakland, but other than you know, than that, yeah, but, okay. But they're like they're like very similar players. They're not like it's. I mean, they're both. I, I would rather have Steph Curry and Clay Thompson. Not my argument, but. The point is, like, they both they both can kind of do a lot of the similar stuff. Oh, and well, no, well, Clay is the, the classic, you know, but Clay is the catch and shoot guy who's an elite defender. Curry is off the dribble and he can facilitate, and then he's you know not as good of a defender, so they kind of complement each other. I mean, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, like, that's a good point. You know, that's a good but point. either way, I, it's a pretty good. They're good. They're good. I think they might win a title one day. Maybe. Um, they may, are they going to make the All Star game this year? Oh, we talk about Stephen Clay now, or yeah, uh, yeah. Luca. Stephen, yeah. Stephen Clay. Okay, yeah, good. I think they will. All right, good because you know this new I new way of voting and whatnot. Um, so anyway, but I think it would be a colossal failure in the Mavericks' part if they can't make this work. Um, although sometimes you look at it and it's like maybe it's better to cut bait before you're into it too deep and it's just not going to work. Um, and right now it's not working. And again, there's an issue with Carlisle and who's who tends to be uh, a bit of a control freak and uh, maybe not as. I don't know. I don't want to say he's not innovative because I've seen him, uh, you know, his offense has morphed and has stayed up in the times and tried to be as, as clever as possible. So uh, if he can't figure it out, uh, then I suppose maybe nobody could. And that's a shame because, yes, I believe that there, there is a version of the Matrix where they do build a really good team around these two guys. But, uh, yeah, if, if Dennis Smith can't handle um, being off ball as much and sort of letting – and by the way, let's just face it, there's a lot of components here to why Doncic would be a bigger star, right? And there's a lot of the things that he oh, can't yeah. control. Um, you know, based on what he looks like. And that's a big problem for, you know, it could be a big problem. It could not be a big problem. And we'll have to wait and see how that plays out. But uh, why why doesn't uh, Dennis Smith Jr. have more uh, value around the league? Yeah, I mean, well, the thing is, I think DSJ is super marketable. He's a good-looking guy. He's a super explosive dunker. I mean, he's got everything you could possibly want, possibly want from a marketing perspective, except for an outside shot and being good at basketball. But uh, he... 
I don't think his value is bad. I mean, if you look at the trades, the trade ideas that were floated for him, that I think had some merit to them. It was basically the other guys in the top ten of that draft, the guys that went ahead of him in that draft, which I think would be short sighted as well. If Orlando's willing to cough up Jonathan Isaac for him, do that trade Harpy. That'd be that'd be great. You get rid of a troubled asset who maybe he's a better prospect still than Jonathan Isaac, but you're acquiring a super useful player that can fit your system well. So uh, same thing with the idea of Josh Jackson and TJ Warren, which doesn't make financial sense, but I kept seeing that one. I mean, still, if I can get Josh Jackson, I mean, people are down on Josh Jackson, but hell, I'd be happy to try to make it work with him. So right now, the actually, I would usually say don't trade DSJ because his value is not that high right now. And you have a long time to try to make this work and it's not kind of at ahead. Uh, but if they're, if they actually are able to get some of the other, t- you know, top six, seven picks in the draft from last year, then they should go ahead because this is an amazing time to pounce. And you have two teams in Phoenix and Orlando that are unprecedentedly desperate to get a long-term point guard solution. And you could push them into making a mistake like that. For but sure. It seems like apparently Phoenix is convinced that, they're going to get Terry Rozier this offseason, who they've been trying to trade for for like a year now. And so I don't think they're going to be willing to cough up a really valuable asset. Well, the only thing that's weird about this whole situation is that Smith Jr. hasn't played under mysterious circumstances for the several last several games. And uh, it's weird because if the Mavericks really wanted to trade him, they would feature him. They wanted to play. They'd hope he play well and get people excited about him. So that means to me that it's maybe his decision to sort of have a random illness or whatever it is because he's upset about the whole situation, which is really unfortunate because it just it's a negative light on him and, and his agents and that whole thing. So we'll have to see how that plays out. But we're going to talk about the Rockets and their threes and how crazy they went the other night against the Nets coming up after the break. If you've ever watched movies like Wolf of Wall Street and wondered what it would be like to invest your money, then you've got to try an investing app called Robinhood that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos all commission-free. I've been using Robinhood for a little while. It's really intuitive and easy to understand, with tons of good information to help you make decisions on what to invest in. In just four taps, you can make a trade without a charge, unlike other brokerages that could charge you 10 bucks per trade. So you can keep all your profits. If you're not that familiar with the market, and trust me, I'm a novice, you can easily get started with Robinhood. And best of all, wait for it, Robinhood is giving away a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build your portfolio. Sign up at breakdown.robinhood.com so you can start. You'll get a free stock by signing up. So head on over to breakdown.robinhood.com. So the Rockets and the Nets hooked up for an interesting game. Uh, Without Capella, they were really small playing TJ Warren at center. And the Nets did a little revolutionary thing, which they played 2-3 zone for a lot of the game, which is interesting because of the Rockets' penchant for shooting threes. Naturally... They got 73s up. They got 35 in the first half and then 35 in the second half plus overtime. Um, it's kind of a crazy thing. I used to say, if you can get 53s and they're all good threes, then take 53s. But I never got to the number 70. Jared, what is your take on those shots? I I would say 70's bad, but then I watched them and I'm like, nah, it wasn't that bad. So, I, by the way, that was a that was an NBA record, right, for threes in a game. For sure. sure it was. Yeah, actually, I got to 
I'm doing BR. I'm doing a play index right now just to see how many times anyone's ever taken 60. I don't I'm think sure anyone took 60. I feel like it was the 50s, but either uh, way. Houston took 60 in 2016, and that was okay. it. Yeah. So, yeah, they really scratched up uncharted territory there, and I'm fine with it. It's, I mean, I watched those shots, and I would say maybe like 10% of them were yeah. bad shots, which is fine. You, you know, teams, especially Houston, who forces up a ton of mediocre shots a game. They're going to have, like, that's, I thought that the percentage of mediocre shots was consistent with how it usually is for their offense. Yeah. So, and they were going up against a good defensive team who was going to make life difficult. The zone that Brooklyn's been running has been working really well for the last few weeks, and it's going to force Houston to take more outside shots, and what does Houston never do? Take mid-range shots. And if you look at that shot chart from that game, I don't think they had any. They might have had, like, one, like, 13-footer. So... Mm -hmm. It fit it. It fit the. It was a super high pace game that went to overtime, where they had a hundred five field goal attempts for God's sake. So mm -hmm. they had seventy shots from three, and then thirty five shots in the paint. Yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty reasonable distribution. Um, that other. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, for them. I mean, the, the the other game that shows up here when I run uh, the play index search on basketball reference for sixty threes in a game. Uh, they took 33 two-pointers in that game and then 61-3. So it's following pretty much the same ratio there. Sure. So, I mean, this is just – their offense is – it's a, it's annoying. Like, I don't like it, but it is ruthlessly efficient. And they scored 145 points in that game. So, I mean – Oh, yeah. And they, it, by the way, they, they, the had, they had the game. They lost the game on Spencer Dinwiddie, friend of the breakdown, Spencer's uh, incredible Reggie Miller-esque finished uh, in the last minute – because they had a they had an eleven point lead with like two minutes to go, so it should have worked. It shouldn't have been a problem. No one would have thought differently. Uh, and then the loss in overtime, uh, it, you know, it was just an improbable thing that probably won't happen again. So that's also part of it. And it's interesting. I'm going to probably do a video on this. I did a video today where I in a in a fun way did a Civil War letter to Greg Popovich because what we're seeing with the Spurs is that they're the taking the least amount of threes in terms of frequency, but they're also number one in percentage and they're a top ten offense. And we have two other teams in the Pelicans. And then the Clippers were also taking a very low frequency of threes, a good percentage, and they are in the top 10 in, in an offensive rating. So teams can do it when they're more judicious with their three attempts. But another video I want to do is to look at the zone because there's a lot more zone. And I just did a video on the athletic uh, that, that focused on the zone, how it's coming up uh, a lot more. But it's an interesting look just at that one game of the 73s, how to generate threes and how to attack the zone properly because while some of them weren't uh, great shots, you know, there's probably 10, maybe, you know, 10, 10 of the 70 weren't great shots. Um, a lot of the shots they did take were exactly the shots the zone wanted them to take. You know, a guy, uh, maybe one pass, not a lot of movement and a hand up and they got, you know, a bit of a contest. That's all you want to do. And hopefully they miss. And they got a lot of misses out that way as well. So um, it's an interesting battle, as we see, because it's the one team you think you wouldn't play zone against is, is the Rockets. But uh, you'd have to argue that as far as the three-point shooting goes for that for that game, uh, the Nets were successful with what they wanted to do and ultimately did give them the win somehow. Um, so I think that's an interesting uh, dilemma we need to look at. Or not dilemma, but certainly interesting take to look at as we move forward. Because I, you have to think that like Steve Kerr is watching that. And looking at some different zone stuff and wondering, having to go up against the Rockets, if they want to try it. Well, what was funny about the zone was that they were trying to basically attack Harden with a double at the top of the key. So there were a ton of possessions where Harden, and I think maybe they did it uh, a bit with Gordon, 
where they would trap him as soon as he got to the top of the key, force him to kick out, and then Gerald Green would pop a quick three. Mm -hmm. And how many points did James Harden have in that game? So, yeah. yeah. 60? What did he have? 60? He had, he had 58, right? 58, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which, way less than 60. Right. Oh. But so... Yeah, yeah. And by the way, that, that gimmick also by the end. So they did the 2-3 zone for most of the game, but then they, they just started literally throwing, running a guy at him when he was way out by the Toyota Center uh, uh, logo, which, you know, is which never is a great idea. But yeah, but it, it got him out of his hands. And they're like, please, anybody, anybody else beat us. Uh, and, you know, uh, Austin Rivers couldn't. He had a couple in and outs that would have iced the game completely, and they couldn't knock him down with that two-handed shot he shoots. Uh, that's another video, but nonetheless, um, yeah, so it's, it's a really interesting blueprint. Like if you want to try and guard Harden, uh, you know, again, do we let you let him go off and shut everybody else down or do you mix it up or you try and every once in a while take it out of his hands and I don't know, it's a real conundrum, but I guess take it's all it, kind of take moot. it out of his goddamn hands. Yeah. Oh, all right. Well, yeah. now you do it because no CP3, no Capella. Uh, they had Eric Gordon. But yeah, certainly in, in that con con configuration, you want to do it. But uh, the, it's kind of moot because they're going to be healthy, I imagine, for the playoffs. And that's when you got to deal with what, how you want to guard these guys. And I don't know if zone will work when you have CP3 out there. It's true. But you know what? If I can get PJ Tucker or TJ Warren, as you call them at the beginning of the segment, to uh, that was my fault, as I said TJ before. But. Um, if I can get PJ and Gordon and Austin Rivers and Gerald Green and James Nunnally, who had a huge clutch three, I th was it two? The, yeah, two, two clutch threes. So yeah, he was. I, I can't believe. Uh, I mean, Daryl Morey might get GM of the year, even though it hasn't gone well for him, just because right. of how they've been able to scrape this thing together. Or, uh, or is we'll it D'Antoni, right? Because D'Antoni does this yeah. all the time, right? Guys will come in out of you know and just you know. By the way, it's almost like. I would love. I wish I was young right now, growing up in the game, because you can hang guys who can shoot like that. They can hang in those games now. It's much more wide open. It's not as physical. You can get to the corner and be that guy. Whereas back in the day, even if you could shoot, you had to, they expected you to do so many other things that maybe you couldn't do well, and you would never get a chance to really participate in those upper level games. So it really is interesting where guys can now come in there who are competent and and actually have an impact on that, especially the way the Rockets play. Yeah, I mean, I just want to make a point that Houston Rockets started Gary Clark at center, and I'm pretty sure Gary Clark played from the Mets in the 80s, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, alongside uh, up. Yeah, Mookie Blaylock, and uh, I can name that whole starting lineup, can I? No, I, I was talking about the New York Mets. Yeah. Isn't Mookie Blaylock? He played for the Mets, and so did Lenny, Len Dykstra. And... Did Mookie Blaylock play baseball? Let's see. Oh, no. Mookie Wilson. Whoops. Oh, there we go. And I'm thinking of Gary Carter. Oh, well. All uh, right. Well, hey, you know, you're, there was a Gary, Joe Carter. There was a Gary Clark that played uh, baseball, though. So maybe. Yeah, I think that's right. Anyway, yeah. this is a basketball he played podcast. for Idaho Falls in 1969. So, yeah, people break down podcasts. Uh, but yeah. so we don't specify but, which B we're talking about. I, I want to talk about that video that you made because you're raising a really interesting point, which is that San Antonio is the most efficient three point shooting team. Their coach hates three pointers, and they also play the highest percentage of possessions in the half court of anybody in the league and my i i don't know if, i can't remember if you said this in the video but you know the theory just being that they produce really good quality three-point looks in that their three-point looks more than probably anybody i'm sure the, probably the warriors do it more than anyone really but they get guys not just like guys that are wide open but guys that are like catching in rhythm expecting to shoot wide open 
It's not like guys that get left wide open and they look around to see, like, can I shoot this? There's mm-hmm. a difference between that versus being ready to step into the shot and pull up. Because really, you want to pull up right off of the catch. You don't want to catch the ball, look around, then realize you can shoot it, then feel the pressure that everyone's watching you, not sure if they're going to close out to you. That creates tension and nervousness that gets you thinking during your shot, which screws up your shot. I want to catch you know, if I'm a hop shooter, which I am because I watch people break down, Absolutely. I'm hopping into the catch and I'm pulling up right away off of it. I do it nice and easy so I can still get my hands around the seams, you know, reorder the ball in my hands and get a perfect clean shot off. And I'm looking at the back of the rim and it's hitting the back of the rim and going down. That's how a go- really good offense works. Not, you know, the Celtics have this problem. I see it all the time. It's really annoying to watch. Uh, You know, in Houston, we saw it a lot in that game where, like, so many of these shots by Houston will be Gerald Green catches it, defense runs away from him, or there's some sort of weird thing, and he looks around, he's like, okay, there's someone to shoot in now, and then he pulls up, and he took 15 threes in that game, I think. Mm -hmm. Went, like, 5 for 15. I mean, 5 for 15 is not bad. It's not good, but, like, it's not bad. But, like, that's, that's what Houston's offense looks like, and it's really, it's aesthetically not pleasing it at least leads to a lot of offensive rebound opportunities, which I feel like they get a lot of like chase down offensive rebounds, but it, it I feel like it, taking away the creativity of an offense kind of takes away, it makes you more predictable. And I think it allows the defense to try to game plan for you over time. And, you know, Brooklyn had an interesting game plan that they tried, which I thought was nice. Um, you know, we know that we know what Houston's going to do. They're going to keep churning pick and roll until Harden gets a big or Gordon or CP3 when you tell they gets a big and they're going to try to attack it. And, you know, it works most of the time. But if you have the right personnel and it's in the playoffs and you know what to do, you can game plan against it, I think, fairly easily. And I just I wish that they had some sort of maybe they have some sort of ace in the hole. Last year, they didn't really, but they were so unbelievably good that they almost pulled it off and didn't have the worst. I feel like I say this once a week. If they have the worst shooting performance pretty much in NBA history, they would have won that game seven and probably would have won the title, and the conversation doesn't matter anymore. But watching that last night, I wasn't concerned about the threes. I was concerned about just the just like the lack of variance and that's what i love about san antonio that's why i could watch san antonio run a g league roster out there and still think it's great basketball coach popovich works in a pretty stressful environment as do all nba coaches and if you saw pictures of him in his early 30s you'd have seen a nice full head of hair unfortunately most of that hair is gone as is the case for 66 percent of men by age 35 But that doesn't have to happen to you. If you still have the hair up there, then you should do everything you can to keep it. And that's where Hims comes in. A one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and sexual wellness for men. They have medical-grade solutions to treat hair loss and make it so easy you don't even have to sit in a waiting room. Just answer a few quick questions online and they deliver their products right to your door. If you click on forhims.com slash coach Nick right now, you'll receive a trial month of hymns for just $5 while supplies last. This would cost hundreds of dollars if you went to the doctor or a pharmacy. That's F O R H I M S.com slash coach Nick and see website for full details. 
Interestingly enough, the uh, Spurs don't really rank that high as far as passes per game. They're like way down there. So they're not necessarily moving the ball more than anybody else, but they are getting good threes that are kicked out from driving kicks and from flare screens. And what I think that the Rockets are trying to do is overcome all of that by volume. And so simply by shooting enough threes, eventually they're going to catch up. But the, what, what they're ignoring, and I think at some point the math guys are going to need to start factoring this in, is success rate. I think that at some points there's a, a diminishing return there when you are, you, you're still only converting the 33% or 30% of those threes. Even though you're going to make 18 in the game, that's good. Uh, and maybe the other team only makes 11, and then you probably will win. But I think there's got to be a breaking point there where the success rate of possessions has to matter more than what they're valuing it now. I know they do it with Russell Westbrook as well, where he's actually doing better this year <laughs> at the rim. But, you know, he would he, the traditional argument against him being so poor at the rim or being so average at the rim was that he does it in volume so much that he makes up for it. But again, especially with shots at the rim, when you have when you're inefficient there, that becomes a problem for a lot of different reasons. So anyhow, interesting. A lot of stuff. Uh, well, well, make sure no, you guys no, no. you're, you're yeah. not wrapping up yet. We got to oh. dig a little bit deeper. People hang on. So you're making a really important point about analytics, which is that the whole like the whole you know threes and you know, high frequency all that kind of stuff that is rational you know mathematic analysis which made me sound stupid saying it but the point is that it's played by humans in that mm -hmm. missing shots has an effect on humans ability to execute it affects these guys and so you're touching on this really important point that i don't think houston has had this issue with and frankly james harden can miss 50 shots and he's still going to take that 51st shot the same way and that's what makes him so special but it's that there is a toll on missing shots. And Houston's the only team that's been able to make this model, this like super high frequency model work. I don't think it's sustainable. But do you think there's another way to is there another type of offense that can make it work? Is there like what what is there a way to overcome the human element just as a coach and with your experience? Well, I mean, like when I mentioned earlier in the game or in the pod about uh, you know, good threes. And that if you could have an offense that generated 50 good threes, then take 50 good threes. So, I mean, that, that's sort of the issue here. And the, But the definition of good three becomes a problem because what we do know is, you know, good, the best threes are the ones when you throw it to the post and they kick it back out. And the second best oh, yeah. ones are when you drive and then kick it back out. And the worst ones are the ones when you, well, the third worst are when you swing it back around the perimeter and catch it. Even though it might be open, you're still, it's coming from the perimeter and not from the basket area. And the, probably the lowest percentage obviously has to be off a dribble, off of an ISO dribble. And meanwhile, <laughs> that's what the Rockets are doing. They're shooting the worst of those. And now they have, you know, Austin Rivers, who's doing it as much as anybody. His success rate is, I actually counted every single one from last year and this year. I, I'm going to say this. I don't know why. Oh, I, you know why? Because I was really impressed with the way he's playing this year. And everyone was like, oh, he's been doing that for two years in L.A. And I'm like, eh. So here's what happened. I overrated the way he's playing now. And probably underrated a little bit what he did in in the Clippers with the Clippers. So it's sort of somewhere in the middle where he's not as good as I thought he was in, in Houston, but he's doing okay. But his ability to to take these James Harden stepbacks, and and he doesn't make that many of them. Um, it, but but the fact that he's taking them and has the confidence to do that just is, uh, I guess, is a D'Antoni you know special. But uh, at some point, like, you know, and I know when Chris Paul comes back, it won't happen as much. But, you know, I can't picture conference finals. Austin Rivers playing that when doing those those shots of this two-handed thing. And, by the way, you mentioned how it hurts and how it affects players when they miss. 
watch Austin Rivers after he misses the shot. Like you see his whole body language just kind of collapse uh, several times on some of those shots where you know he felt like he was open, they should have gone in, whatever it is. And so it's like I would be really concerned about you know him going on prolonged slumps when it, when a single shot will affect him that way. So I don't know. Keep your eye on I all think, of that. I think I, I'm so glad that he's in Houston because his game doesn't work for like 29 teams in the NBA, but it works for Houston. Houston uh, okay. Him. Same same idea. Like I said, you can he can hang. You can in the game the way the game is being played now, and the way Houston's doing it. Yes, you can hang. You can get in there, and you can. And D'Antoni's going to find a way, at least on offense, to make you work and uh, to work well. And then you know people want to give Austin Rivers credit for his defense. I I don't really see it, but you know, okay, he seems like he tries, so I'll, I'll give him that much. But you know who does try is you, Jared. You try every time. You bring it 110 percent. On every pod, I, and I want to—I appreciate that. If only they could see my body language right now. <laughs> yes, it's really positive, really good. As always, you don't have to work on it like some players do. So, uh, thank you so much for coming on, and everyone else, thank you for joining us on this terrific podcast. And uh, we will be back again next week, right, Jared? I'll be back. All right. Well, don't forget, sports fans, at B-Ball Breakdown, we're not a channel; we're a conversation. You in? Are you in, Jared? <laughs> I've completely run out of responses to this question. No. Oh.